Well, good morning. Thanks for joining us here today. And as I begin, I just want to say, I know the last couple of weeks have been really difficult, a lot of tragic things going on. And uh, if you're here, if you're doubting, if you have questions, I just want to say uh, you're welcome to do that. And we're glad that you're here. Also know it's a holiday weekend. And so there's fewer of, uh, fewer of us here this morning, but I still think God has something that he wants to say to us. And so we're going to look at his word this morning. As I begin, I want to tell you a story about a DEA officer who was uh, stopped at a ranch in Texas. He heard there was a lot of illegal drug activity going on in this part of town. And so he goes to this ranch and he talks to the old rancher who was running this farm. And he said, I need to inspect your ranch for these illegal drugs that we've been hearing about. And so uh, the rancher says, okay, you can search my farm. You can go wherever you want. But uh, that field right over there, I wouldn't go there. Just wherever you want, just don't go over there. To which the DEA officer responded by getting very angry and started to yell at him and saying, sir, do you know who I am? I have the authority of the entire federal government. I can go wherever I want to on your ranch if I see fit. And then he pulls out his badge and he says, do you see this badge right here? This badge means I can go in that field if I want to, and you can't tell me otherwise. At which point, the rancher nodded politely, he apologized, and he said, yes, sir, you can go wherever you want, and he went about his chores. Well, a short time later, the old rancher hears loud screams coming from the part of his ranch where he warned the officer not to go. As he looks up and he sees the DEA officer is running for his life. And for shortly behind, or right behind him, he's being chased by the rancher's temperamental longhorn who lives in that part of the ranch. And so as he is running, the DEA officer is running. Every step he takes, this longhorn seems to get closer and closer, at which point the rancher throws down his tools, runs to the fence, and yells sarcastically to the DEA agent, show him your badge. Just show him your badge. <laughs> Now, of course, that's funny because the Longhorn doesn't know, nor does he care about what sort of authority the agent has to be there today. And today, as we continue our, our study through the Gospel of Mark, we are going to look at this same question, that who is Jesus that he should tell us how to live? What authority does Jesus have to do what he does and to say what he does? And if you were here last week to completely overthrow the temple as he is doing, who is he? And of course, the religious leaders today are going to challenge him with that same question. What authority do you have to do what you are doing? And so if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to Mark chapter 11. Uh, there's a black one around you if you want to read there. And if you do not have one, you can take one of those black ones home. It is our gift to you. Now, a quick recap. Jesus is in Jerusalem. He is in what, what is called Passion Week. Uh, this is the last week of his life. Uh, we're going to see he's on a, this is a Tuesday morning. So he is approaching his, uh, his, his trial and will ultimately be his crucifixion. Uh, last week, if you were here, we saw that he cursed a fig tree and then he went into the temple and kind of overthrew the, or not overthrew, but threw over the tables and the money changers and kind of basically said, hey, what is happening here? is not the way that it was supposed to be. And now he is going to be challenged by the authorities in Jerusalem who he is 
to do this sort of thing and to act the way he has been acting. Now, as we read this, I just want to set this up for us because I think we can misunderstand a little bit what's going on here because you and I, we don't live in the first century Jewish context. Uh, But when Jesus is challenging the temple, what he's not doing is simply challenging the religious structure of the day. So you might be thinking it's like Jesus, if he came into a church and he like, you know, told the church how they were supposed to be acting, the rest of society at large wouldn't be impacted by that. But you see, the temple, whether you were Jewish or not, or devout or not, was not just a place of religious instruction. It was actually central to all of what's happening in Israel. Not just religious, but also political and with economics as well. Uh, it, it dominated too, not just the walls of Jerusalem, but the hundreds of thousands of people who would make pilgrimages every year, the taxes, the animals, all of these things. It does, wasn't, again, it wasn't just religious. It also was essentially the central bank for Israel, particularly in Jerusalem. Uh, it was also its capital building where the leaders of Jerusalem would have spent their time. It was also essentially their Wall Street. Like, we don't really have anything quite equivalent, but maybe uh, imagine the Capitol building in D.C. also being where the president lived and also being where Wall Street happened and also being where the educational decisions were made all in one place. That's what's happening here. And so for Jesus to attack something so important, not just holy, but also massive, took enormous courage and no doubt sealed his fate. Right? You could not challenge the temple structure and expect nothing to happen to you. In fact, it, enjoyed, it employed most of the people who lived within the walls of Jerusalem, whether you were Jewish or not, whether you were doing taxes or selling animals. If you were living in the walls of Jerusalem, your income, no doubt, was impacted by that. It was central to everything. And this is what Jesus is challenging. It's not just the religious structures. It's everything, life as they know it. And so it says this in Mark chapter 11, verse 27, the next day after he kind of did his scene in the temple, told them that they are not operating it the way that God would have them. Then it says this, verse 27. It says, they came again to Jerusalem, which would be Jesus and his disciples. As he was walking in the temple, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders came and asked him, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority to do these things? Now, again, this is Tuesday. It's the third day of Passion Week here. Jesus is challenged by the religious leaders for what he has done. Certainly, they have in view yesterday, but not just yesterday. It's really the last couple of years. Right now that he is in Jerusalem, they don't have to send any religious leaders to go and see him. All of the big players are here, and they are going to ask him, why did he do that? Why did he say the things that he has said about the Sabbath or about ritual purity or healing or all of these things? Who is he to do? what he is doing. What right does he have? Now, again, remember, this is not just religious, but it's also, again, Jesus is challenging the most powerful system of the day for Jewish people. In fact, uh, he's in a really difficult spot here because even in ancient rabbinical, which were uh, Jewish texts like the Mishnah, for example, uh, it says that if you appeal to false religious authority, that was grounds for capital punishment. So if Jesus tries to appeal to any uh, divine reason for what he is doing, remember, Jesus kind of is operating outside the traditional Jewish structures of training and rabbinical training and all of that, that could be grounds for capital punishment. However, the things that Jesus has done, the only way for them to actually be okay is that if he came from God or if he is God himself. Again, for him to, to explain to the leaders, as we've seen in past passages of Mark, how the Sabbath is supposed to be run or what ritual 
sexual purity actually looks like or how the temple life is supposed to go down. The only way you can say that is if God has himself given you the authority to do so. Otherwise, you are outside the bounds. But yet, to say that God said I can do these things, of course, to the Jewish leaders' minds would be blasphemy because he hasn't kind of uh, gone, gone up through the traditional rank. So this really is a no-win question for Jesus. And so here's what he says, interestingly enough, verse 29. Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question, then answer me. And I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was John's baptism from heaven or of human origin? Answer me. Now, what he's saying here, John the Baptist, if you remember, baptized Jesus to inaugurate his earthly ministry. And just like Jesus, John, before he was killed, was uh, also operated outside the lines of the traditional Jewish hierarchy and structure and training. And so he was really popular. He was well-known. Uh, and so he couldn't be simply dismissed. So the Sanhedrin, which was really the Jewish religious uh, or political and governmental structure of the day, they kind of, if there was laws or trials that needed to come up, you would go through the Sanhedrin. They would decide what was going on. Um, they had a hard time simply dismissing John the Baptist because he was so popular. They couldn't just say he's crazy, he's this one-off, ignore him, because so many people heard from him, many people were baptized by him, uh, he was really well-known, and he was really popular. And so Jesus wants to ask them, well, before you discredit me, let's talk about John, and my baptism was from John, and so we need to see if John was legit, because if John isn't legit, well, then you can say I'm not legit, but if he is legit, then we have a problem. So we asked them, what authority did John the Baptist have to do the things that he said? And here's their response. They discussed it among themselves. If we say from heaven, in other words, John did have authority from God. If we say from heaven, he will say, Jesus will say, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, so John was just doing the things that he wanted to do from his own uh, fruition. This is they were afraid of the crowd because everyone thought John was truly a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. So again, the problem here is that if John the Baptist truly was a prophet sent by God, then Jesus' baptism and therefore Jesus' ministry would be also from God. Of course, to admit that is a problem for the religious leaders because they had uh, mistreated and kind of dismissed John the Baptist, just like they have done to Jesus. And so to avoid a scene, to avoid uh, making the crowd angry about what's going on, they don't give an answer. And so therefore, Jesus also responds in kind, and he doesn't tell them the authority that he has to do what he is doing. Now, what's interesting here when you read this, especially if we kind of maybe put a modern lens on it, uh, you could say, say what the religious leaders was doing was wise. Or you could say that the religious leaders of this time were uh, opting for suspended judgment, or maybe they were just keeping an open mind. Right? Your truth is your truth. Jesus' truth is his truth. And so we don't want to say who's right or wrong. So we're not going to say anything. So in fact, as modern readers, we could be encouraged by what we read. Now, the reality of what's happening here is at best, these leaders have skepticism towards Jesus. At worst, they have unbelief and cowardice, that they're not willing to confront what Jesus is doing because they want to maintain the status quo. They want to maintain their control. They want to maintain their power. In fact, I would submit to you, it's not that they don't know, they don't know who Jesus is. I would rather say that they are 
unwilling to know. Right? They don't want to give up their power and control. And if we're honest, just the same, the same goes for you and for me. Now, you might not have economic and religious and societal authority like these leaders did in Jerusalem. But all of us have in the small areas of our lives that we can control. We don't want to give that up. Right? We, don't want, we don't want to tell someone to change something that we're comfortable with. We don't want someone else, some outside authority telling us we've been doing things wrong all along. And so there is no doubt that this stopped them. There was no doubt the pressures of life and the status quo and what they were used to made their uh, looking at Jesus not simply objective and rational. There's a lot at stake if they grant Jesus as who he claims to be. And so as we read this text, the question for us is the same thing that the religious leaders are facing. And that is, do you know who Jesus is? Right? Do you know who he is? Or is it kind of like a matter of opinion? You know, what's good for you? What's true for you? It doesn't really matter. Let's just all get along. Do you know who he is? But what this makes me think of when we're talking about who he is and are we willing to know or do we just not know or is it just one of, you know, many flavors, if you will, it makes me think of those optical illusions, you know, where you look at them and then they're, and they're and, you know, depending on what you see, like you'll see something different. Uh, and so I've got a couple I'm going to show for you, okay? And then I'm going to ask you to raise your hand and to see what you see, to see if we see the same thing or if we don't. So here's the first one. You might be familiar with this one. It's pretty popular. Now raise your hand, okay? If you see an old woman kind of looking like this direction, right? Raise your hand if that's what you see. Some of you are like, what? If you see a younger looking woman, maybe looking to the back, raise your hand, right? Now maybe you're like, oh, I see both now, right? So is that what's going on? Oh, here's another one. Here's another one. If you see a duck, raise your hand. Who sees a duck? Okay. Who sees a rabbit? Some of you see a rabbit, right? Is that what's going on here? It's kind of like, I don't see, oh, wow, right? It's like, whatever you think it is, that's totally fine. Or maybe here we'll end with this one. This is really popular. Here's, here's the next one. If you see, or blue or gold is the options here, okay? If you see a blue dress, raise your hand. If you see a, gold, a white and gold dress, raise your hand. See, so you're like, no, nah, you're lying. I, this is not, I did not plant these questions, right? And so we look at this, and we have different opinions. And the question again for us is, do you know who Jesus is? Is this kind of, well, whatever he looks like, I'm going to go with. Or is the reality that there is a truth and there is something that is wrong? Because the reality is, when you read the Gospel of Mark, it is very clear that Jesus does things that only God can do. He forgives people with the authority that only God could have. Uh, he teaches things like the Sabbath and ritual purity and hand washing and all these things as, as like you guys are doing them wrong. Here's how it's supposed to be done. The only way that he could do any of these things and be right is if he's the one who actually instituted all this in the first place. Now, here's the thing. You can disagree that Jesus is who he claims to be throughout the New Testament and the Gospels, but it's not because the Gospels are unclear. We can disagree, but perhaps because we have questions or we don't know, or maybe you're here today and you don't know anything about the Bible and you're trying to figure out this Jesus thing. That's totally fine. Welcome here. My hope is after a while, you and I would begin to see how clear these things are. And so we can disagree, but it's not because Jesus is unclear. It's because we either trust him or we don't. It kind of makes me think of, you know, there are times where Christina goes to bed and she'll say, hey, hey, babe, before you go to bed, can you unload the dishwasher? Now, this is not an unclear question. This is not if, if you feel like it when you get your lazy butt off the couch and come to bed, stop, make a pit stop in the kitchen and unload the dishwasher. But if not, no big deal, right? She asked me, hey, before you go to bed, can you unload the dishwasher? 
with the expect- expectation when she gets up in the morning, there is nothing in the dishwasher, right? She's, she's clear. It's just a matter of not whether I want to say it that way or I want to say, well, actually, you asked me a question and I decided not to do it. Like that, that's not, that, that wouldn't go over. That wouldn't go over well. Mark is very clear who Jesus is. And so the real question for you and for me is this. Are you willing to follow Jesus? Are you actually willing to follow him? Uh, here at New City Church, when we baptize people, we ask people two questions. Uh, one is, do you believe Jesus is who he says that he is? And the second one is, will you do whatever he asks you to do and go wherever he asks you to go? Are you willing to do that? Now, uh, last month when we had some baptisms, we baptized uh, my daughter, Finley, our seven-year-old daughter. And so, so we were talking about baptism beforehand and, you know, what it is, and she wanted to do it, and we asked these questions. And so she said to me, Daddy, um, Jesus has never told me, told me, said anything to me before. So how do I know what he wants me to do? Right? Like, like, and that's a legit question. Like, he's never verbally, we've never had a conversation with Jesus. He never played dolls with me. So how do I know? what I'm supposed to do. And if we're being honest, I mean, many of us ask that same question. It's a legitimate question. And what I told Finley is the same thing that I would tell you and me. There's two answers to that. One is through his word. He speaks through us through his word, what he would want us to do, what it looks like to love him and to love other people. And the second question is, you'll know, because he gives us his spirit. Through his word and his spirit. And here's what I know. I think many times we kind of get this confused, confusing, or we make it more complicated than it actually is. So let me just lay it out for you here this morning, really practically. If you do not yet know Jesus, uh, God's will for you without a shadow of a doubt is that you would know the grace, the love, the mercy, and the forgiveness that he has for you. That you would enter into the kingdom of God with your doubts and with your questions and with your mess ups and with your falling short, that you would know him and that he would know you. There's no doubt that he wants you to know his grace. And if you do know Jesus, here's a good question for us, particularly with what we're talking about this morning. Uh, What does it look like to follow him this week? Uh, What area of your life are you maybe not willing to give up control? But I think what sometimes happens is we get so caught up on this big picture of what is God's will for my life, which is kind of ambiguous. It's hard to answer. And I think a better question is what is God's will for me today? Or how can I trust him this week? Right? Who can I love or who can I forgive or who can I be generous to this week? And my guess is God will answer that question for you, but oftentimes we just don't like what comes to mind. We just don't like what the Spirit says, but it's not that the Spirit isn't guiding us. Like if you ask the Lord Jesus, who should I forgive this week or who should I be kind to that doesn't deserve it? My guess is somebody will come into your mind, but you just might not want to do it. I just might not want to do it, but it's not because he's not leading us. Right? What does it look like to follow him this week? What situation do you need to forgive someone for or do you need to ask forgiveness to? Who do you need to treat with kindness and respect even if they don't deserve it this week? That is the question. Are we actually willing to follow Jesus in the day-to-day of our lives? See, these leaders were not willing to do so. Instead, they wanted to stamp him out completely so they could continue to live life as they knew it. And so Jesus has a parable for them, an allegory for them to to demonstrate what's going on. If we continue to read Mark chapter 12, starting in verse 1, here's what it says next. It says, he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard 
put a fence around it, dug out a pit for a wine press, built a watchtower. Then he leased it to tenant farmers and went away. So to set this up, you have a landowner who goes through a great expense to have a land prepared to create a harvest. He has all these things, a vineyard, a fence, a wine press, a watchtower, a lot of money to set up this area to grow fruit. And then he asks people, watch over it, and then he leaves. Verse 2, at harvest time, he sent a servant to the farmers to collect some of the fruit of the vineyard from them. But they took him beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Then, again, he sent another servant to them, and they hit him on the head and treated him shamefully. Then he sent another, and they killed that one. He also sent many others, some they beat, and others they killed. So instead of payment, he sends these, these tenants, beat, they mock, and then eventually begin to kill some of these people to come uh, for the owner to rightfully take what is his. They don't do that. They kill him, they beat him, and they want to keep all the profits for themselves. And so the uh, owner has another idea. Surely this is going to work. So verse 6, it says this, he still had one to send, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son, right? Because this is different. The son, unlike the other servants, is a legal representative of the father. Like this field is going to be his one day. And so the owner, rightly, you would think, assumes that they will not mistreat my son because they know that this land is kind of my son's anyway. So they're going to have to listen to them. Yet, what happens is the, the tenants don't do that at all. Uh, they, they're going to do something different. It says this in verse 7. But those tenant farmers said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him. And the inheritance will be ours. And so they seized him, killed him, and threw him out of the vineyard. So instead of listening to the son, what you would expect to happen, what happens is they kill him. And so not only do they not give a portion of the fruits away from the vineyard, by the way, which would not exist if the owner had not set it up, uh, instead they kill him and then they want to take it over for themselves. Like if we get rid of all of his family, this is just going to be ours and no one can tell us how to run it or what to do. And so that's what happens here is that they kill him. Now, one of the things that the religious leaders would have picked up on, and we'll see in a second, that we can easily miss is that this is not simply a story about how, um, about a story about how to be nice to people who kind of give you things or how to, how to respectfully honor the owner of a vineyard. What's happening here is that Jesus is no doubt referencing the history of Israel. And here's why we say that. So often throughout the Old Testament, uh, the prophets were referred to as servants of God. They would come to give messages to the people, typically, hey, you're being unfaithful, hey, repent, hey, do this, so that you can experience God's blessing. Yet you know, if you read the Old Testament, that many of them were beaten, some of them were even killed. Uh, and so vineyards, so, so you have servants of God imagery going on here. And also in the Old Testament, vineyards were often used as imagery for Israel as well, as things that were being kept or being unkept. And so while Jesus is using a cultural example, the significance would not be lost on these studied religious leaders. You have a vineyard. You have servants who are being mistreated. You have a vineyard who's not, who's not being faithful. It's not being uh, run the way that it is supposed to be run. They would know exactly what Jesus was talking about here. And so then he says this in verse 9. 
Jesus says, what then will the owner of the vineyard do? Right? They killed the servants. They killed his son. He will come and kill the farmers and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this scripture? Then it says this, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This came about from the Lord and is wonderful in our eyes. In other words, the owner came, and then what does he do? He rightly judges the farmers, also in this case would be the religious leaders, for what they did to the vineyard, right? They can no longer use it because they have misused it. They have turned it into something that it is not supposed to be. And so then Jesus, in verse 10 and 11 in your Bibles, it might be italicized or emboldened or something to that effect. Uh, he quotes from Psalm 118, verse 22 and 23. So when he says, the stone that the builders rejected has become a cornerstone, this uh, came about, or this, where is it? Uh, this came about from the Lord and is wonderful in our eyes. It's from Psalm 118, verse 22 and 23. Now, Psalm 118 is all about the love and the faithfulness, and the trustworthiness of God. And that the Lord is supposed to be the cornerstone of a structure from which everything else is built. Or maybe in modern language, like a foundation of a house. It doesn't matter how beautiful a house is, how elegant it is, the land that it was placed on, right? If the foundation is wrong, uh, the ceiling is going to get messed up, the floors are going to get warped, you're going to have tons of problems, and so in Psalms, just as those who rejected the, the Lord as the foundation for everything, now these leaders are rejecting the Messiah, Jesus, from which all things are from, right? The Messiah, the cornerstone, is being rejected. And yet all of this came from the Lord. The temple, God calling a people to bless the world, all of this came from the Lord. And so Jesus, knowing what would happen and knowing what it means to say and to do the things he would do, still came to open the vineyard for all people. If you were here last week when Jesus says, uh, you have turned, my, my, the temple was supposed to be a house of prayer and you have turned it into a den of thieves. It's supposed to be a light where all people can come and pray and worship, but you are prohibiting that. That God sent his son to make it possible for anyone who would actually want to access the vineyard to come. And so what Jesus is saying here, what Mark is showing us here is that Jesus is the cornerstone. That Jesus is the cornerstone. Uh, that the only way for us to experience the vineyard, or what it's really an analogy for, the only way for you and for me to experience the kingdom of God uh, is through the Son. It's not through the temple in their case. It's not through the sacrificial system in their case or for us. It's not through church attendance. It's not for, through doing more good than bad. It's not through uh, throwing $20 in the giving box or going online and donating money when you have the chance. Uh, it's none of those things. It's not doing more good than bad. It's the foundation for all these things. It is Jesus. It's not not hurting other people. It's trusting and following the cornerstone. And that is what Mark is showing us here. It's not in, not in minding your own business or not doing anything that hurts anybody else. What Mark is showing us is that if you and I get the foundation wrong, everything else will be messed up. We will miss everything else. We will miss the main point of it all if we don't understand that it's not us and what we do or what we not do, but it is Jesus who is the foundation and the cornerstone that you and I might experience the grace and mercy of God. It makes me think of it this way. I don't know if you've ever had a project or built something and you maybe didn't listen to the instructions because who's got time for that? Or maybe you did and you just read them wrong. And you're getting like halfway through or you're almost done with the project and you realize there's a problem. 
and you start like looking through the instructions and you found out that the problem is not the previous step. It was like one of the first steps. And this whole thing's going to be messed up. Like this isn't maybe the perfect analogy, but a couple of years ago, we were moving my mom out of her uh, townhouse into her new house like five or six years ago. And we have people over, you know how this goes. And we're loading everything up in the truck and it's like a Jenga game and you have to like get everything in there because you're not going to make two trips, right? And so we get all, everything in there and it's, it's perfectly loaded and everything's good to go. And uh, people start heading out to a new house. We're like, we'll be there in a couple minutes and we'll unload and we'll do the pizza thing and all that. And then I get into the U-Haul and I turn it on, but it wouldn't turn on. And uh, I'm like, this is a problem because this joker took us two hours and it is like perfect. So I call U-Haul and the person was like, hey, we're going to send someone out. It's going to be in about 30 minutes. And <laughs> then she was like, but no problem. If the truck can't start, we'll just send you another one. Ma'am, I don't want another truck. I don't care. I want this. This is the one that we've done. Everyone's already left. I ain't trying to get, I, I want this to work. And what can happen is that you and I can fill up the U-Haul of our life doing all these things. But if our foundation is not in the one who can do for us what we cannot do for ourselves, you and I will miss it. We'll miss it. The leaders are missing it. Instead, they want to do something else. And so here's what it says. The last verse we read, Mark uh, chapter 12, verse 12, it says this. It says, they, this is the leaders, were looking for a way to arrest him, which is Jesus. But they feared the crowd because they knew he had spoken this parable against them. So they left and went away. Right, so they knew this was about them, so they're still looking for a way to legally arrest Jesus and kill him without causing an uproar. Clearly, they can't do it today because if they arrest him after this parable, people are going to be like, oh, they knew it was about them, and they're just trying to get rid of this guy. So there's nothing they can do in the moment. Now, again, for us, what's happening here is that this parable is about who Jesus is and what he came to do. Right? Even when the owner is rejected and sinned against, what happens? He is patient. He sends servants, and he eventually sends his son. And when it looks like it is, the owner has been defeated, when it looks like everything is lost, his purposes are actually being accomplished through the death of his son. That his vineyard is not dispossessed, his vineyard is not destroyed, but instead it is opened up to anyone who would want to come to follow him. The wicked tenants are judged and rejected, and they are removed. And the vineyard is open to anyone who would desire it. That Jesus' death is our victory. And so the challenge for us this morning as we read this text is not to be like the religious leaders who missed it, listen, because they wanted to. Missed it because if they trusted and believed what it would cost them and how it would radically change their life. They know Jesus is talking about them and they could have repented. Right? They could have, but instead they find a way to get rid of him. And if we're honest, you and I can do the same thing too. That what he's calling us to, what he's asking us to do is hard and is difficult and we might not like it. And so instead of submitting to him, we try and justify going our own way. But even in that, here's what Mark is showing us. That if Jesus is the cornerstone, if he is the foundation, here's what this means for us. Here's the last point that I, I want to just submit to you this morning as we think about our life and as we think about how you and I might fall short, but as we remember that Jesus is the foundation and not our efforts, here's what I would say. That God doesn't love you to the degree that you are like Christ. He loves you to the degree that you are in Christ. 
He doesn't love you to the degree that you are like him, that you try to be like him, you try to do what he does. He loves you to the degree that you are in him, that you actually trust and follow him. Now, let me say it this way. Um, the question then might become, should followers of Jesus be like Christ? Should we emulate him? Should we try to love people the way he has loved us so that people can experience his grace? Absolutely. Hear me. Is that the foundation of our salvation? No, it is not. No, it is not. He is the foundation. And it's about what he has done for us. So here's a quick trick question. Don't respond out loud because I don't want to embarrass you, okay? Trick question. Are Christians saved by good works? Absolutely yes. Just not ours. Just not ours. <laughs> We're saved by the good works of the cornerstone. The one who perfectly lived his life and laid it down so you and I might experience the grace and the forgiveness of God. You see, because three days later, this cornerstone is going to be the rejected stone. That he is going to be killed, and he is going to be betrayed, but he's going to do it so that he could do for us what we could never do for ourselves. That if you feel like an outcast, if you feel like you've blown it, if shame has overrun your life and no one deserves to love you and you do not deserve forgiveness, Jesus came to say, that is not true. That's why I've come, to invite you and me in. See, because the good news of the gospel is that Jesus doesn't stay dead. That he was ultimately resurrected three days later on a Sunday as the cornerstone of salvation for all humankind. For anyone who would trust him, not just for some, but for all. The question is, do you know him? Do you know him? Do you know that he loves you not because of your effort or what you try to do, but because of what he has done for you? And in the midst of our shame, in the midst of our sin, and in the midst of when you and I fall short, there is redemption and there is grace for us because of him. See, God loves you to the degree, not that you try to be like Jesus, that you work like Jesus, that you emulate Jesus. All those things are well and good and important. Ultimately, the foundation of his love for you is what Christ has done for you. And if you are a follower of Jesus, if you have trusted in him, he looks at you the same way that he looks at Jesus, which is loved which is welcomed, which is righteous, which is redeemed, which is a son or daughter of the king. He loves you because of what Christ has done, not because of your effort.